0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: You mess with the ball. You, you get the horns. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network.
0: I do hope you're having yourselves a great weekend, and thanks for making us part of it on the Chorus Radio Network. Um, In an hour's time, it'll be time for Beauties on the Beast with Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, and yours truly. And one of the issues we'll talk about is the uh, electoral reform, which is probably going to turn out to be anything but electoral reform. There was a nasty little session in Parliament a couple of days ago with the... uh, electoral reform minister, slamming the other members of the non-liberal members of the committee and then apologizing. I thought this was going to be a kinder, gentler parliament. Oh, yeah. Well, then was the elbow session. We'll never forget that one, right? Get out of my way. Oh, did I hurt you? I'm sorry. Let me stammer an apology. Um, Pipelines, pipelines and First Nations. Professor Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan, and Professor Coates very kindly spends time with us. He's also the co-author of Dream Factories, about universities overselling themselves and overselling the degree realities. You should read it. But on the, he's also the author of the report, First Nations Engagement in the Energy Sector in Western Canada. And First Nations people are deeply involved in oil and natural resources extraction and taking to market and own hundreds of companies on the cutting edges. Uh, but we also know there are major associations of Aboriginal chiefs who are marshalling against the pipeline decision by Justin Trudeau. Ken, thank you uh, for the time. Y- y- You're right about two competing First Nations realities in the oil sector in Western Canada. Origina- Aboriginals who are deeply opposed to pipelines, to dams and other oil industry infrastructure, as well as I just mentioned First Nations engaged in investing in working in and owning companies serving the oil sector Can you sort that out for us, please?
1: Well, it's certainly a different world than most people think. You would think from the sort of standard coverage of what's going on that all Aboriginal people are opposed to pipelines. And, in fact, we have uh, hundreds of Aboriginal companies and dozens and dozens of hundreds of workers who are actually working with uh, oil and gas companies. They own oil and gas companies. They produce oil and gas in some sectors. We actually have some proposals for... Um, pipelines, the uh, provide natural gas pipelines that would be wholly owned by Aboriginal people. So I think I think it's important to sort of realize that the issue is not really about Indigenous versus non-Indigenous. That's that's a, not the right way to sort of understand what's actually going on. The issue is primarily about the coast versus the rest of the country. And if you look at the protests, and I completely respect the people who have different opinions than I might about this, um, but the people who are concerned are the ones who live. On the, on the west coast in Vancouver, Vancouver Island and whatever, um, and they're concerned about, um, about oil tanker spells. Uh, they're actually concerned about pipelines. The pipelines, almost everybody knows, is the safest way to move large and large quantities of, of uh, oil and natural gas from one place to the other. And there's another group of people who are um, activists on the climate change uh, situation. And they're really panicking about the sort of the future of the world in terms of climate change and human-caused climate change. And so they're doing everything they can in, uh, to try to stop the consumption of fossil fuels. And, and there are some Aboriginal people in, in that group as well. So if you look across the country, say just Western Canada for, for now, you'll find that the, the, probably the majority of Aboriginal people are accepting, not necessarily wildly supportive, but accepting of oil and gas uh, development except on the northwest coast and Pacific, uh, Pacific Northwest Coast, where the concerns are quite different.
0: So does this break down then to demographics and geography, I suppose?
1: I think very much to, you know, into geography. It's really a key issue there. Um, some of the First Nations around the oil sands in the Fort McMurray area are doing extremely well. They own lots of companies. Their development corporations have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Uh, They are employing lots of people. They're very actively engaged in making equity investments now uh, in in that sector. Um, uh, Kinder Morgan uh, has actually signed up um, uh, agreements with more than a dozen, more than two dozen, actually, uh, First Nations along the route, where they've basically agreed to sort of find a a resolution that will actually meet everybody's needs. So the majority of First Nations are sort of, you know, cautiously accepting, uh, cautiously accommodating of of a pipeline. Um, but then the ones on the northwest coast, the ones in Vancouver, Broad Inlet in particular, are not. Um, and when you think about that, it makes sense. Uh, most people on the prairies are very supportive of pipelines. Most people in the interior of British Columbia have a, a very sort of uh, off-hand-off kind of approach to pipelines. Oh, if you have to build them, go ahead. Um, In fact, the study I was referred to the other day said that 60 percent, this is an unofficial, unscientific poll done by a radio station, but it showed that 60 percent of the people in Victoria were supportive of of Kinder Morgan. You know, so the ones who are really urgently concerned about it are the ones who live along the coast and are worried about oil spills.
0: Um, What do you see happening then, uh, based, based on this week's decisions by the prime minister and the government, what do you see happening as far as, uh, on-the-ground realities is concerned when the shovels get put in the ground and the, and the Trans Mountain starts to be built. We, we know that the prime minister on this coming Friday is meeting with premiers and with the aboriginal leaders in Ottawa on his pan climate uh, Canadian pan-climate initiative. But what do you expect happen, will, will happen when the shovel's at the ground?
1: Well, we'll see what we're seeing at Standing Rock, North Dakota. And we'll see what we've seen in other sort of places across North America, that there'll be concerns. Uh, we saw those with Keystone XL. Uh, there were people prepared to sort of stand up and protest, standing in front of the of the bulldozers. It's not a new phenomenon. We've seen it in major cities and with roads and with railways and other things in the past. Um, I think we'll see a concerted effort in this particular instance. The one thing that, and, and I say this with a, a considerable amount of knowledge of Vancouver, I've probably lived there for about 10 years uh, over the last 30, 40 years. Um, Vancouver is very quick to mobilize. They... They have a very strong environmental movement. It's got very excellent connections, and people are used to going on the streets to express their displeasure. So we had a rally a couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I guess it was, that it, um, had about 5,000 people come out, which in Canada is actually a really big rally. It didn't get a lot of attention across the country, but it's a fairly large rally. Um, my guess is when you actually comes down to doing the construction piece, um, we may well see rallies and protests that are in the uh, three and four times the size of that, uh, which will really force the government to sort of make it clear that they really want to proceed, but we also have to give particularly the First Nations here some enormous credit. They're doing the same thing at Standing Rock. Uh, Standing Rock is the one in North Dakota where there's a concern about a pipeline that goes very close to a to an American Indian reservation, and they've declared repeatedly their their commitment to nonviolence, as in fact the First Nations along uh, in, uh, along the Northwest uh, Coast in British Columbia have done. They they they've said they're upset. They don't want it to go ahead. They're going to protest, uh, but they've also committed themselves to not protesting in a violent way. And that actually has been the pattern. It is their right uh, to express their opinion. It's their right to protest. That's one of the strengths of Canada's political system. Um, The the problem we have in Canada is that people who are supportive of things like pipelines tend to be very quiet. Um, So if you actually got everybody together who really wanted to see the pipeline go ahead, you might have three times as many people show up at a parade Mm -hmm. or a rally. Um, but that doesn't happen. So the people who oppose something are far more likely to organize than the people who are supportive of a project like this. Uh, so you, I think the you, evidence is relatively strong that the majority of people in Canada understand the need for pipelines and want to see them proceed.
0: I was reading your uh, First Nations engagement in the energy sector in Western Canada report, and, and you write that First Nations have been on a legal roll of late. A series of court victories have turned them into resource rulers. And then you write about I don't know if it's Called UNDRIP or UNDRIP, um, and, and how this UN initiative continues to change the landscape in favor of First Nations input into the natural resources sector. Uh, that has, to, I mean, that, that's that's a major factor as well as we, as you've been saying. So the courts uh, are available and have been very favorably disposed toward First Nations.
1: Well, well, they have, and and I think you know, favorable kind of applies. I've used that phrase myself, but it sort of kind of implies that they're they're tilting the balance you know, to one side. Yes, it does. Um, I think the laws is on, on, Aboriginal, on the Aboriginal side to a certain point. So, for example, you know, the courts actually turned back the um, Northern Gateway uh, permission. The federal government had, under the Harper administration, had authorized the construction of Northern Gateway. And the First Nations took it to court, and the court said, actually, there wasn't sufficient consultation. And so they basically told the government, you have to go back and do some more. Now, what's interesting is uh, Enbridge, the Northern Gateway proponents, have actually been doing an incredible amount of local consultation. They didn't do a particularly effective job in the first instance, but for the last couple of years they've been doing really, really hard work trying to talk to communities about the benefits and the risks and the uh, efforts of compensation, efforts at protection and what have you. And, and so companies realize that they have to sort of work within the parameters of the law. The government realizes that. And, and, but I think we're really at the point where we're going to figure out or find out from the courts where, where the line is drawn. Um, The courts have made it clear, at least to my mind, that Aboriginal people do not have a veto. The the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People basically has a phrase in there that talks about free, prior, and informed consent. Some people have interpreted that to mean a veto over, over resource projects, but most others agree that it is not. It means you have to discuss it with people, make it clear what the challenges and issues are, and provide appropriate compensation. But I think on these kinds of issues, we're going to be—I'm sure—they're going to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada at some point, and we're probably going to get what we really need, which is a fairly clear decision by the Supreme Court of where the line is. At what point can the government act in the national interest? Governments cannot surrender the right to act in the national interests under under certain circumstances, um, and the First Nations have their rights which have to be honored and respected. We just don't know where that line is between those two positions. And it's been edging very much toward the First Nations side, but at some point, it's probably going to stop. And I think on the pipelines, you'll probably find out where that is.
0: At some point, and this is my final question, or I guess point to you, at some point, people, all people are going to have to realize that our combined economic reality... Um, our combined economic success and jobs and moving forward is going to uh, depend on us taking advantage of what's available to us. And what's available to us is our natural resources and getting them to international markets that want them.
1: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things we have to also realize is that these opportunities are quite are quite uh, short-term. Uh, McKinsey Valley Pipeline, uh, actually I was finally approved uh, back in the early 2000s, after extensive environmental review, by the time the review was done and after a long, dragged-out process, uh, the economics had changed. And the Mackenzie Valley natural gas pipeline was no longer economically viable. And the First Nations were going to be the owners of 30 percent of that pipeline. And it would have actually transformed communities along the route and given them a, a secure source of income. And so the the comment there about what you made which is very appropriate is about the the well-being the economic opportunities the sort of the prosperity of Canada applies equally to First Nations people that if if they want as many of them do to actually have a share in Canadian prosperity to actually earn the, the have the opportunity for work for business development and what have you uh they're going to have to get involved and the the interesting part of this whole story is that you would think from Sort of the general media covers that Aboriginal people are not involved in oil and gas, aren't involved in pipelines, and are opposed to any of these kinds of developments. There are First Nations opponents, but in fact there's an awful lot of proponents and a lot of people involved. So the phrase I always use is the resource sector in Canada is actually now the front line of reconciliation. If you want to see where Canadians are going to figure out how to work together and live together, we're actually doing it very well in the resource sector. We can make it better. And I'm hoping when the pipelines go through, we'll make it better again.
0: Professor Coates, thank you for the time. You're always welcome. Thank you. Professor Ken Coates, University of Saskatchewan, the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation and the author of First Nations Engagement in the Energy Sector in Western Canada. All right, one 1-800-263-2428, 1-800-263-2428, my number. Same question as before, same questions before, and that is, do you support or do you oppose pipelines, oil pipelines? If you oppose them, you have to tell me why. And don't just say climate, please. You have to tell me why. You have to explain it, because I don't get it. You have to explain it so that I can understand, because Danny Kader won't talk to me. 1-800-263-2428. Call me now, and we will talk when we come back.